Philippians chapter one, uh, we are beginning a brand new series uh, in the book of Philippians simply called Conduct Worthy of the Gospel. I'm gonna read Philippians chapter one, verses one and two, and then also verse 27. We're not gonna get any further than that, and I know no one's shocked, and, uh, but, but we will move through this series at a decent pace. We'll get through Philippians. It's only four chapters, and uh, wanna be able to cover several, several chapters over the next few weeks. And so Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse one, reading from the New Living Translation, translation, also up on the screen, says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. May God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And then jumping down to verse 27, this is really the theme verse for this whole series, comes right from Philippians 1 verse 27, says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news about Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive, it is powerful, and it still speaks to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray and ask that you would help me to communicate your word with boldness, with clarity, with simplicity. God, help me to speak your word in a way that would challenge us all today, that would convict us to become the people of God that you've called us to be. And I pray, God, that you would help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, I pray. And may every word that comes from my mouth bring glory and honor to you and to you alone. I need you. Help me to speak your word today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hope you came prepared to listen quickly. Uh, I talked to several of you before service today, and I I think we had more people in need of coffee today than we ever have. So uh, I hope I hope you you stick with me or you stay with me now for the next few minutes. Um, this this series, the letter of Philippians, the book of Philippians, is one of my favorite New Testament books. Uh, favorite letters of uh, one of my favorite letters of Paul, and I, I certainly believe that you will be uh, encouraged and challenged over the next few weeks. Uh, Today's message is just simply called the source of our gospel conduct. We're going to be talking about over the next several weeks what it looks like to live the gospel life, what it looks like to live as citizens of heaven uh, who live our lives in a manner, conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I believe that you will be challenged over the next several weeks. The focus of this series will center on Paul's charge in Philippians 1.27 to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, which we're gonna see that fleshed out in several ways over the next few weeks. Today's message, just to kind of give you a little bit of insight, today's message is very foundational. It's going to really set the stage for where we're going to go over the next several weeks. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at things such as how gospel living shares in the work and ministry of kingdom advancement. We're going to look at how gospel living is selfless and reflects the character of Jesus Christ. Gospel living is shining the light of Christ in the midst of darkness. We're going to see how gospel living is God's people starving to know and experience the presence of Christ. We're gonna see how gospel living is is seeking to press on to receive the heavenly prize that is in front of us. We're gonna look at how gospel living is sold out on living a life of joy, peace, and godliness. And then we're gonna conclude by looking at how gospel living 
is settled and content with all that we have. But before we really jump into, and today we're really just gonna look at verses one and two. And if you're wondering how in the world can I get anything uh, that is challenging out of just those first two verses, you will be surprised. There is a lot there, a lot of meat, a lot that we can chew on. But before we get into those first couple of verses, I'm gonna talk quick this morning, but I want to really lay the foundation. I want you to have kind of an understanding or get clarity on the letter of Philippians itself. I want you to understand its origin, its unique purpose within the whole of scripture before we begin to examine this opening greeting and charge for the believers. So if you are a person who really uh, isn't interested in, in context or historical background, this would be the good time to take the short nap, but then I need you to wake back up um, after that nap and come with me because we, we have some very important things. I'm just kidding, don't take a nap. All right, just stick with me uh, for a few moments this morning. So let me just begin and let me move through this quickly. Some of these things we know, but I wanna reiterate this morning. First of all, this letter was written by Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle wrote more, more letters, more books in the New Testament than any other person. And so Paul the Apostle is the author. There, there are no scholars that disagree with that. You might find one, but they're way out there anyways. There's someone that does not agree with them. So, so the reality is Paul is the author of this letter. Let me talk a little bit about just the genre or the type of letter for Philippians is. Uh, Philippians is a letter of friendship. Uh, I think some of us, I, I know we're not really people who write letters as often anymore, um, but, but some of us have probably written more formal letters to, to, to bosses or employers, but we've also written letters of friendship, people that we love, people that we care about. And, and, and you know that if you write a letter to an employer, that letter is going to look different than the letter that you write to a close friend. And so we see that with Philippians. Philippians is a letter of friendship. It's gonna look different than some of, other Paul, some of the other letters that Paul writes. When he writes to um, uh, the church at Corinth, he is not writing necessarily as a friend. It's not a letter of friendship. When he writes to the church at Corinth, Paul is trying to correct the chaos and the division of that church. And, and so he writes with a different tone and a different attitude. But in Philippians, this is a letter of friendship. This is a group of people at church that is partnered with Paul in the advancement of the gospel. He has a special relationship with them. And so as we go throughout this letter, you're gonna get that sense that this is a different type of letter. It has a different tone because of the relationship that exists between Paul and the church. Let me say a few things about the characteristics of this letter. It reflects that, that of a friendship letter in really the first century period during the Greek and Roman history. When you, if you were to kind of unfold, or if you were to read some of the letters of friendship during that period, there were certain characteristics that you would find in those types of letter. And let me just give you a few of those. First of all, friendship letters often made references to the absence between friends. Let me give you a few examples. Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 1 uh, we see in verse 27, uh, Paul says this, then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. So you see there is this distance between Paul and the church. He says, whether I come and see you again. So there's, there is this sense of absence. And we also see it in chapter two, verse 12. He says, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. So this is one characteristic of a letter of friendship. Number two, friendship letters always noted a concern of the affairs of the sender 
and the recipient. We see this in Philippians 2, verse 19. It says, if the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. And then later in verse 23, he says, I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. So there is a concern for the affairs of the sender and the recipient of that letter. And we see that in a letter of friendship. Number three, friendship letters highlight that the recipient does well in looking after or tending to the needs of the sender. So look at this in Philippians chapter four, verse 14. Paul says, even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Paul is writing this letter from prison and he has indicated that they have shared with him in his own present difficulties. And so again, a characteristic of a letter of friendship. Number four, we see that friendship letters emphasize the partnership or the participation that exists between the sender and the recipient. We read this in in Philippians chapter one, verses three through five. Paul writes these words, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. And whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy for you, he says, have been my what? My partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. So one aspect of a friendship letter is there would always be reference to the partnership that existed between the sender and the recipient. And then number five, friendship letters are often express deep affection between the two parties. You would expect that in a friendship letter. It has a different tone. There's there's affection, there's love, there's this companionship that exists between Paul, the sender, and the recipients, the church of Philippi. We read this in Philippians chapter one, verses seven through eight. Listen to this description. He says, so it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you. For you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and I long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. So that is, that is why this is a letter that has a completely different tone. If you go read Galatians, you, you do not get that sense. Paul is so frustrated uh, when he's writing to the churches at Galatia that he doesn't even give his normal Thanksgiving. He just skips it and he gets right to the point because there there are matters that need to be addressed. But this letter that he writes to the church at Philippi, there is a relationship that has existed. There is a partnership in the gospel. There is companionship that exists between Paul and the church at Philippi. Therefore, this is deemed a, a letter of friendship. If you were to write a letter to your employer, I doubt you would say, things like, you have a special place in my heart and, and, and I long for you with tender compassion. I doubt you're gonna use, unless you're looking for a raise or a promotion, I doubt, I doubt you're gonna use that phrase in that letter. And so you can see there are two different tones and that matters, that matters when we try to understand the heart of what Paul is trying to say to this church. We also know that it is a letter of moral exhortation. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, moral instruction was often given in the context of letters sent. Anytime that that correction needed to occur, people would send letters to to bring about that correction. Paul does that with the church at Corinth. He sends them a letter to correct the chaos and the division in the church. This was very common. Again, we don't do this. Maybe we send emails out. We don't send letters uh, because if we want to deal with the matter quickly, we know it might take several days for the letter to get there. and, And it's a whole lot easier to talk to somebody in person anyways, because they may not understand the tone behind what we wanna say. But regardless, in this day, letters would oftentimes be sent 
to provide that correction. Paul will use in Philippians, Paul uses the example of Christ, Philippians chapter two. He says that we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to reflect that attitude. And he uses that example and even his own godly example in chapter three as models for what gospel conduct or gospel living looks like. And we'll talk about that over the next several weeks. In summary, Philippians then serves as this letter of strong encouragement. It is a letter of encouragement, Let me uh, of friendship. Let me talk a little bit just quickly. And again, I'll get to the meat here in just a moment. Um, the location of the letter's origin. Um, you may or may not care about it, but I'm gonna tell you anyways. Um, scholarship considers there are four different options. Um, it, it's possible that, it, and, and Paul is writing this letter from prison, but the question is which prison and from what town is he writing? And most people believe, traditionally speaking, that it was Rome. Um, that was one of the options. Some believe that maybe Ephesus or Corinth. Uh, more modern uh, scholars believe that he was most likely writing from a prison in Caesarea. And that was based on different biblical evidences. I will tell you this, whether it's Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, or Caesarea, that is not going to change anything this morning. That will not affect our gospel living. So if you walk out of here and you are convinced for whatever reason, it's Ephesus, that's fine. We don't have to argue about it. The message is still the same. But I want you to understand that he is writing from a prison somewhere. And we see in scripture, many people believe more recently that it was Caesarea where he was imprisoned because he had the freedom to have visitors come and go at their own pleasure. And he even gave a defense of his own faith during this time. There's a couple of scriptures, Acts 23, verse 35. Uh, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive as well, giving orders for Paul to be kept in Herod's praetorium. We see in verse 23 that he gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from providing for his needs. And we see that in Philippians, he's gonna send Timothy or, or, or others who are gonna come and go and bring him letters or he's gonna send letters with them. So there was a little bit of freedom that existed. The letter was written somewhere between 58 and 60 AD. Uh, again, with Caesarea most likely as the, the location. And the recipients of the letter, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the church at Philippi, were the believers in Philippi. Chapter one, verse one says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. So we don't really have to wonder who is he writing to. He's writing, it's very clear. We don't have to try to dig into the Greek word for Philippi to figure out who are the Philippians. No, he's writing to the church at Philippi, the believers that are there in this city. Let me talk just a little bit um, about the city itself. Philippi was in a strategic location. It had a rich heritage. Uh, there was a, a, a path that went through Philippi to Rome called the Ignatian Way. It was a trade route. It was a very popular trade route. And it was on this route that allowed many missionaries to advance the gospel uh, to Rome or get to Rome or to other places throughout the known world. So this was a very, uh, a very special place and it had a lot of travel come through it. We know a little bit about Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. Um, or a province that was oftentimes settled by soldiers after major battles. What would happen is they would send the discharged veterans after a battle. They would send them to Philippi because what that would do is that would guarantee a, a large group of people, a large population of people that, that would give, give allegiance to the people of Rome. So they wanted to make sure that whoever lived in this city as a Roman province, they would, they, they would give allegiance to the people of Rome and to the way of Rome. And so that's why they would oftentimes send some of the, uh, the discharged veterans and say, here, I want you to go and I want you to, to take up habitation in this city, in this location, so that you can maintain the order there. Culture and religion, they were shaped by the Roman way. 
Uh, the Roman people and the Roman way would worship the Roman emperor. That was prominent, which was an issue when you have these Christians come along, um, these Christ followers who came along, and instead of saying that, that the emperor or Caesar is Lord, what would they do? They would note that there is only one Lord, and that is who? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And so that's what started to cause the tension. You had these Christians who were no longer willing to give allegiance to the emperor of Rome, but instead they were declaring, no, there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ himself, and that is where our allegiance lies. That's what would lead to the persecution of many Christians uh, in the first few centuries. People in the city, they took pride in their Roman citizenship. But Paul will remind them all throughout this letter, Paul will remind them where their primary citizenship lies. It's not in the Roman way, it's not in the culture, but as Christians, as followers of Christ, he will say this on numerous occasions in Philippians, our citizenship resides where? Resides in heaven. They may be citizens of Rome here naturally, physically on earth, but as followers of Christ, their ultimate citizenship resides in heaven. That must be first and foremost. That is a big message of Paul throughout this letter. Philippi was a leading city of Macedonia. We read in Acts 16, verse 12. From there, we reach Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. It was a diverse city. Uh, Romans and Greeks, Latin and Greek uh, was spoken. There were men and women, young and old. It was a very diverse city. I'm not gonna take time to talk about this, but if you go back and you read Acts chapter 16, you will, you will see how the church at Philippi was birthed. Um, and it was birthed uh, basically because of a vision that Paul received. He wanted to head one direction, but he received this vision of a man in Macedonia. And what did he do? Instead of going this direction, he listened to the direction of the Holy Spirit and he went a different way. Uh, maybe some of you in this room before, you, you had a trajectory or a path that you were on, but you received a clear word from God that, that, you know what, I want you to move and I want you to go this direction. And you went that direction and God began to do things in your life that you were not even aware of. And that's what happened for Paul. Paul had, you know, he had his nice um, plan mapped out. He, he knew where, where he wanted to go. He knew where he wanted to take the gospel. And, 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 you know, he whipped out kind of his map here and, okay, we're going to go here next. Tomorrow, this is where we're going to go. Three weeks from now, this is where we're going. And, and he gets this vision, this word from God. No, I want you to redirect completely. You're going this way, but Paul, I want you to go this way. And as a result of Paul's obedience, he goes to Philippi and it's here that this church is birthed and they become incredible partners in advancing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you read in Acts 16, you'll, you'll see the vision and, and the first converts were, uh, were some women that were actually near uh, a river and they were praying and they actually meet in Lydia's household. In Acts 16, verse 40, when Paul and Silas left prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Remember the jailer in Acts chapter 16, um, the jailer and his household, there was uh, Paul and Silas, they were in prison um, in Acts chapter 16. And while they were in prison, instead of complaining and bickering and argue, arguing, what did they do? They were worshiping. They were praising Jesus. They were singing unto the Lord uh, at the wee hours of the night. And, and there was this earthquake and the, and the gates opened up and they were set free. And it's at that moment that the jailer um, and, and his household end up um, believing in the Lord. They are baptized and they too, most people believe, become a part of that church. And so that is the beginning uh, of this church. The purpose of Paul's letter um, to the believers in Philippi was to encourage them, exhort them to stand firm and to contend for the gospel in the midst of opposition and suffering. 
Paul will say in chapter four, and remember, he's writing from prison. Chapter four, verse four, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He writes those words as he's sitting in prison, but he is encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, It's also written to disarm postures of internal unrest that could stunt gospel advancement. He will address some of the internal unrest in that church. It's also written because it's a warning against embracing old ways or the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he writes it in order to give thanks for their generosity and partnering with him in the gospel. But really our focus and our jump off point this morning, the reason he writes this gospel or this letter is to remind them to conduct themselves in a manner that reflects the heart and the nature of of the gospel. That will be our focus. Philippians 1:27 again. Listen to what he says. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. For the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what gospel living, gospel conduct looks like for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ in light of what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi. I have three very simple things I want to share with you uh, this morning that I think will challenge you. I'll give these to you quickly. But the source of our gospel living, listen, the source of our gospel living will flow from our identity in Christ. It will flow from our divine purpose and it will flow from our God-given provisions. We see all of that just in these first two verses. Let me talk about the first one. Gospel living will flow from our identity in Christ. Look at Philippians 1, verse one. This letter is from Paul and Timothy. They were slaves of Jesus Christ. Christ. Let me talk a little bit about that. Let me give you some insight into what Paul is saying here. First of all, Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. Slaves of Christ Jesus, or the Greek word is douloi. Um, oftentimes, the English translation will say servant. Servant is often the translation we see, but, but with the word servant, we lose the force behind this word and what it really means. The Gentile audience would understand douloi to simply mean a slave. Douloi or slaves, they were incredibly common in in the Greco-Roman history in this particular day. Uh, They were those who were owned by or they were subservient to the master of the household. Not like racial slavery that destroyed American society, but slaves in the Roman Empire, they they were not a free person, but they belonged to another. And in the word slave or in the word douloi, we get this sense of servitude or or humility that, that it speaks of. Gentiles converting to Christianity no longer only belong to the Roman culture, but they now belong to a new community of followers, of Christ followers, and that is key. And so doulos in this context was often translated servants of God, and it carried with it this sense of being dependent upon God, a slave of Christ Jesus. This title, Slaves of Christ, that carried with it a double connotation. And I want you to see, Gordon Fee says this in regards to this word. They are Christ's slaves. They are bound to him as slaves to their master, but whose slavery is expressed in loving service on behalf of Christ for the Philippians and others. So I want you to see what it means to be a slave or a servant of Christ. Christ Jesus, here's, here's what I want you to see. Paul calls himself, he, and he introduces himself. He says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. Christ Jesus became Paul's source for everything. Everything for Paul revolved around and centered around the person and presence of Jesus Christ. He belonged to Christ alone. He knew that his citizenship, it resided primarily in heaven. 
He served Christ with a single passion. What does he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2? He says, I desire to know nothing among you except what? Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His life centered around the gospel and the gospel is indeed Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul's conduct reflected the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to see. Gospel living will only flow from our life when our identity is wrapped up in the person in presence of Jesus Christ. If we wanna know what gospel conduct looks like or we, want to, or we wanna demonstrate or live our lives based on the good news of Jesus Christ, then our identity must flow from the person in presence of Jesus Christ. For Paul, he was a man of single aim, single passion. It was all about Christ and all about the gospel and it needs to be for us as well. Here's what I want you to understand. Listen to me, when our identity is wrapped up in what other say about me or what I've accomplished or what I have or what I don't have, our conduct will not reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, a worldly way of living is often chaotic, destructive, and at the end, it goes nowhere. But listen, when my identity is centered on the person and presence of Jesus Christ, no matter what others say, no matter what I have or don't have, and no matter what I've done in life, if my, if my identity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, then godly conduct will begin to seep out of me. But only, only if I recognize and understand that my identity is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Identity that is rooted in the fact and the belief that you and I, created by God, we have stamped on us the imago Dei, the image of God. We belong to him. So no matter what the world says, no matter what the world tries to communicate to us, our identity is not wrapped up in what I have or the relationship that I'm in or what I've done or what I've accomplished. My identity, first and foremost, is rooted in the fact that I belong to Christ. I am his, I've been created by the creator and I have stamped on me the Imago day. And when that occurs, then gospel living will begin to flow out of me. So here's the question we have to ask. How can I determine if my conduct is worthy of the gospel? Here's a few questions, very practical questions we can ask. Is my identity wrapped up in the person or presence of Jesus Christ? Am I serving him alone? Or am I trying to keep one foot in the world? and one foot in my relationship with Christ. Scripture says we cannot serve two masters. We, we cannot try to have our foot in the world and also have our foot in a relationship with God. There will always be tension. It will not work. Am I a person of single passion? Is my life revolving and centered around the person of Christ? Am I a man or woman of single passion or is my loyalty divided? What do I think about? What am I interested in? What do I long for? What do I crave? Where do I spend my time, my energy, and my resources? However you answer that question will determine where your identity lies. If you can answer the question with Jesus Christ, then you are a person whose identity is wrapped up in the person of Christ. Christ must be the center of our lives. Number two, gospel living will flow from our divine purpose. Look at Philippians chapter one, the second half of verse one. He says, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. Several translations refer to the audience here 
as saints. This was a common name given to the covenant people of God. In your translation, it might say, I'm writing to all the saints in Philippi. That, that is common. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I am thankful we don't do that. Um, amen. Can I get an amen on that? All right. Um, kiss your spouse, kiss your, your kids. That's fine, but stay away from me. All right. Uh, we shake hands. We greet one another with, with, a, with a holy shake. That's what it is. Um, that is, has nothing to do with the message, but um, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints... All the saints, all of God's holy people greet you. So that was a common name given to them. The name saints or holy people of God, it has its origin uh, all the way back in, in the covenantal promise that was made between God's people and Israel in Exodus 19 when they were on Mount Sinai. That relationship, that covenant was established. Exodus 19 verse six says, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Uh, in Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament, it refers to God's people as saints. Psalm 16, verse three, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones. All my delight is in them. Now here's the thing. The term though saint has oftentimes been misunderstood in our context. Sometimes it can carry with it this kind of elitist mentality. Like if I'm a saint, I'm being referred to as a saint, then that I'm better than everybody else. But that's not the reality. That was not the purpose of that word. It was not meant to say that God people are, are some, somehow better or more elite than, than, than others. No, we're all created in the image and likeness of God. We all belong to him, but this was a term used to designate those who have been set apart for God and for his purposes. And, and so we see that here in scripture. Now, but the preferred, I want you to see this, the preferred translation and more accurate understanding is this, God's holy people. Believers in Christ, listen, are God's people. Believers in Christ then are what? They are called to be his holy people, which means we are called to be what? Set apart by the Holy Spirit for God's purposes and called to manifest Christ to the world. So a saint or God's holy people, that means you and I, believers in Christ, we are God's people. And as believers in Christ, we are God's holy people, meaning we are called to be set apart by the Holy Spirit for what? For the purposes, God's purposes, and you and I are called to manifest or show or reveal Christ to the world. And so when he refers to himself or others as saints or God's holy people, he's talking about those who are believers in Christ, who have been set apart for God's holy purposes for the purpose of revealing Christ to the world. And so that is what I want you to see. Simple understanding is this. God's holy people are those who are, who not by conduct, but by their position in Christ are holy and set apart from the world and set apart for Christ. So this is what I want you to understand. Gospel living will then flow from our life when we embrace the truth claim that we are God's holy people set apart for God's use. Conduct worthy of the gospel will not flow from our lives until you and I grasp our divine purpose. We were called not so we could have special status, so we could pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, I'm special and, and, and I'm more important than somebody else. No, we were called for a very unique purpose. You and I were called to be set apart, to be useful for God's kingdom. But here's the question we have to ask, how am I, how are you, how are we being useful for God? Gospel living, this is key, gospel living embraces the gospel purpose. And this will radically change 
how we live our life. How will it change how we live our life? Let me give you a few examples. We will carry ourselves differently in the home. We will carry, carry ourselves different at work. We'll carry ourselves differently in our culture. We will become more bold in our proclamation of the gospel. We will become more passionate in our worship. We will become more missions-minded in our life. We will have a greater passion for our city. We will have more compassion for the lost. We will have a greater hunger for the word of God if we understand and embrace the truth that you and I, as believers of Christ, we have been set apart, not for special privilege or status, but we've been set apart to be useful for the kingdom of God. And when we embrace that truth, folks, it will change radically how we live, how we interact, how we engage with the people around us, our culture. It will begin to transform everything about our life. We have been set apart for God's use. So let's be useful for God. We've been set apart for his use, so let's be useful for the kingdom of God. Finally, number three, and I'll give this last one to you quickly and I'll be done. Gospel living will be made possible from our God-given provisions. Listen to this greeting. Philippians 1 verse 2, Paul says, May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may he give you grace and may he give you peace. Now this is a, this is a traditional and standard greeting of Paul. If you look throughout his letters, you will find very similar greetings, grace and peace. Sometimes he'll throw in mercy but this is a very traditional greeting. Paul's greeting relays, though, a valuable message to the reader. And this is, this is really sums it all. God has given himself to his people in Christ. That greeting, that greeting, may God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace, is just simply a reminder that God has given himself to us in the person of of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, that just simply means this is the sum total of God's activity toward human creatures. And then peace is just simply the total, the sum total of those benefits that are received by that grace given to us. Shalom is the word peace in the Hebrew. It means wholeness, speaks of the presence of God with us. So here's the key. Therefore, gospel conduct or gospel living it is made possible through God our Father who has given us everything we need to live this gospel-centered life. He has given us Jesus Christ himself. Christ is our source for gospel living. The news is not our source. The world is not our source. Other people are not our source. Your pastor is not your source for gospel living. Jesus Christ himself is our source for living faithfully the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And when we do, when we embrace the fact that our identity is wrapped up in Christ and, and, and that God is at work in our lives, when we embrace that truth, we will begin to recognize that we have everything we need to live this gospel-centered life. Think about it for a second. We have everything we need. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 23, I think we all know it well. The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Some translations say, I lack nothing. Why? Because our shepherd, because Jesus Christ has given you and me everything we need, everything we need to live this gospel-centered life. He may not give us everything we want because everything we want may not be everything we need. 
but he has given us everything we need to live this gospel-centered life, to live faithfully for the kingdom of God. We have the provisions of his grace and his peace. What does he say in scripture? He says we can come boldly into his throne room where you and I will receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So he gives us everything that we need to live this gospel-centered life. He's given us himself, Christ himself. He is all-sufficient, folks. The simple sum of this message is this. Jesus Christ, he is all sufficient. We don't need anything else. There may be other things we want, other things we desire, but he is all that we need. Paul was a man of single aim and single passion, Christ and nothing else. We have Christ and he is all sufficient. Would you stand with me this morning, worship team? Would you come sum it up with this statement. Therefore, we can conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Why? Because first and foremost, we belong to Christ. Our identity is in him. Number two, we are set apart for his purposes. We are his holy people. Not holy because of anything we've done, but holy because we are in Christ and holy because we've been set apart to be useful for his kingdom. And we can conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel because we have everything, everything we need to live a gospel-centered life. We don't have to go search anywhere else. We don't have to open another textbook. We don't have to open another novel. We don't have to read another self-help book to find answers for what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life. We have everything we need right here in the word of God. He's given us a revelation of himself. Now, certainly it's great to have accountability. It's great to have other people who pour into our lives. We need those things. We need, that, we need the accountability so when we begin to slip, somebody can say, hey, let's, let's come back this direction a little bit. But in terms of living and having conduct that is worthy, worthy of the good news of Christ, we have everything we need right here in the scriptures revelation of who Jesus is. We'll see over the next several weeks that he will call us to live a life that reflects or to have the mindset of Christ, a life that is generous, a life that is, that is bright in a world that is dark. He'll say in Philippians chapter two, to, this will be everyone's favorite, I know, do everything without grumbling and complaining. <laughs> I won't tell you when I'm preaching that one because you might not show up. Um, but it's right there in the word of God. We have everything we need. We have Christ himself. And so here's three questions that I want you to consider. And we're gonna end just in worship this morning. Three questions. Because you may find yourself in one of these camps or wrestling with one of these things when it comes to our source. Number one, is my identity wrapped up in Jesus Christ alone? If not, now's the time to get it right. If your identity is wrapped up in what you have or in another relationship or, or how many promotions you can get or, or, or the car that you have or the house that you have or any of those other things, then, then your identity is wrapped up in the wrong things, things that will disappoint, things that will disappear. Your identity needs to be wrapped up in the person and presence of Jesus Christ. So start there. Is my identity wrapped up in the person of Christ alone? Remember Paul, I'm a man, he's a man of single aim and passion. I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
nothing else has the power to transform. Nothing else has the power to do a work in us except Christ. Number two, second question is this, am I being useful for God's kingdom? Maybe your identity is wrapped up in the person and presence of Christ, but, but that holy set apart aspect is not at work yet in you. You know that you belong to him, but you're not, be, you're not being useful for his kingdom. So begin to think about, begin to pray about how can I be useful for God's kingdom? What is he calling me to do? Is he calling me to serve? Is he calling me to go? Is he calling me to, to be a part of participating in the advancement of the gospel in some way or some fashion? You know, I believe, I've been praying, scripture says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I'm praying and believing that right out of this church, there's workers, there's people, whether it's here, whether it's future pastors or future missionaries or, or, or future people who are going to go into their workplace and they're going to be an ambassador, a faithful ambassador of Jesus Christ right where he's called them. But folks, we, we need to recognize that, that we are set apart, not so we can say, hey, look at me, I'm a child of God. We're set apart so we can be useful for his kingdom. So am I being useful? Only you can answer. I can't answer that for you. Finally, number three. Very simply, is Christ enough for me? Is Christ enough for me? The answer for you right now is no, then it's important that you spend time in God's presence saying, you know what, God, I'm dependent on other people. I've relied on other people. You've not been my very all. You've not been my devotion. You've not been my my focus. But I want to make that correction today. Would you close your eyes and bow your head?